politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends and neighbors. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. We have a wonderful show for you today. We're going to talk about race literacy with a guest who's devoted her entire life to educating us on the nature of racism. And uh, you're going to enjoy this conversation, I'm sure. At the top of the show, I just want to take five minutes to talk about the Will Smith meltdown at the Academy Awards. Maybe you think you're over it and... uh, These kinds of things tend to evoke a lot of hysteria up front, and it does tend to fade fast. And I really don't want to talk about Will Smith himself so much as about the nature of anger and the way our emotions get triggered by current events. And what comes up is usually quite old indeed. And in the normal chit-chat of the media, this is missing, so I thought I'd throw in a couple of quick comments about it. Anyone who has read Will Smith's book, or if you've heard about it, you know Will had a horrible, a traumatic childhood and has often been concerned that he was seen as a fearful person. His word, actually, is coward. And this issue comes out of the fact that he was traumatized by domestic violence and in particular by his inability as a child to protect his mother from his father beating her. Now, we all have childhood trauma. We've all made false assumptions about ourselves as children. We forget the false assumption, but it lies buried in the unconscious mind and gets triggered by current events. So when you're angry or upset for some reason, the bulk of the feeling is usually very old. Some of it's about what just happened, but that's why it's called a trigger. Will Smith did not hit Chris Rock to protect his wife Jada so much as he finally got to hit his father and protect his mother. This, of course, was not conscious. It may still not be conscious. I don't know, Will. I I haven't, (laughs) obviously, I haven't talked to him. But, you know, you don't have to be a, a psychology major or a certified psychotherapist to understand the way we're triggered, each and every one of us, by anger. And, and we've all bit flipped or melted down at some point. We just didn't do it on national TV or, or international TV. And it didn't destroy our career. And that's why uh, I have complex feelings about this. But it's a teaching moment, not to learn about will, but to learn about ourselves. And to recognize the imperative need 
for emotional intelligence. We have to learn to open the space between stimulus and response. The opportunity to raise consciousness and understand what's happening to us so that we're able to substitute well-reasoned, even-tempered responses for reflexive reactions. Quite often, we will behave reflexively. We do what we do and did what we did because we felt like it and only thought about it later and maybe defended it or tried to rationalize it. But to act out of emotion with little or no thought is a setup for disaster. We need to take a breath and calm down. Uh, If you're a meditator, you greatly increase the chances that you'll be able to open up that space between what happens to you and what you do with it and then initiate an appropriate response. So let's not pile on to Will Smith. A friend of mine says, this story doesn't have legs, it has wheels. And it's racing downhill faster and faster and faster. And it's just an absolute tragedy because Will Smith is a good guy. He's intelligent. Um, He's incredibly generous. He's kind. He's loving. And he had a horrible, horrible childhood, as many of us have had. So let this be a teaching moment so that we can learn without the pain that Will is going through. And uh, that's as much as I'm going to say about it, but I felt it needed to be said since emotional intelligence is such a big part of a radio program about consciousness itself. And with that, let's take a quick break and come right back before you know it. With our interview, I'll introduce our guest, our topic today, race literacy. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. This is Jackson Brown. I've been listening to KPFK since I was a teenager. Then and now, KPFK has been a lifeline to vital information without which we would be at the mercy of corporate media and commercial interests that control it. There are so many programs that I've listened to regularly and so many instances when I've come upon the unexpected, the unknown, and the sublime. Join me and become a member today at kpfk.org. Now more than ever before, it's essential to keep supporting KPFK and the free exchange of ideas and cultural viewpoints that foster our democracy. And the number, which is the only number I know actually by heart, 818-985-5735. KPFK. I came for inspiration. I came looking for This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. Appreciate you being with us today. This is an important uh, program for me. I only do shows like this a couple of times a year because I, I think the topic is well covered by other programs on this radio station that are devoted to race, racism, what today we're going to call race literacy. But this is a program about consciousness. That means it's a, a a show about awareness. And so certainly that embraces what we've come to call diversity in the fact that mostly through appearance, but also 
in significant ways, culturally, um, in terms of ethnicity. Uh, we are one race of human beings, but we have our differences, different customs, different foods, uh, different songs, different ways of dancing. And that's a good thing. That ought to enrich every one of us. But sometimes, obviously, it's not such a good thing. I want to begin with a brief, just a, an outline of who I am and my background, and then I'll introduce our guest for the day today. I grew up in rural Michigan, uh, a small town of about 6,000 people on the shores of Lake Michigan, right opposite Chicago. And due to the landscape, I'll say, or the maybe what's the word, geology of the area, there was a river that came out, the St. Joseph River, and emptied into the lake there. And on the north side of the river, the land was low and swampy. And on the south side of the river was a high bluff that overlooked the lake, really beautiful area. Well, when this area began to be developed in the early 19th century and factories would come in to serve Chicago and, and in time, Detroit and, you know, by the late 1800s, early 1900s, the auto industry, the factories and the workers would live on the north side in the low swampy land is inexpensive while the factory owners the managers and the executives would live on the bluff on this high estate overlooking the lake and so it turned out to be de facto segregation just a perfect example if i can use the word perfect uh a textbook example of de facto segregation. And by the time I grew up there in the 50s and 60s, the north side, Benton Harbor, was 50, 60, 70% black people. And the south side was pure white. No Asian people. The only Hispanics we saw were the migrant workers that would come in seasonally to work in the farms. And all the black people were on the north side. And it was just understood that white people could go to Benton Harbor, and we often did, but black people, they, they just, they couldn't come into St. Joe without getting, you know, dagger stares, and you would never encounter them in restaurants. There was one black family that lived in one of the poor sections of town, I remember them well, uh, the Hendricks family. And the dad wore a uniform and opened the door at the local bank. That was his job, to hold the door open for you. And his son, Butch, was a football star in St. Joe. Even though it was all white, he was a one black kid. And because he was a football star, he was very well liked. And he had a younger brother, who I remember, who he wasn't much of an athlete. He was sort of round and roly-poly and, and a lot of fun. Uh, and he was well-liked. Now, remember, this is a time when the newspaper, if there was a crime, it would say, 
John Smith, 34, was arrested for shoplifting. But if it was a black person, the newspaper always said, John Smith, 34, a Negro, was arrested for shoplifting. I was a paper boy. I always thought that was odd. I understood it, but very strange. And, of course, this is a time when I'm watching Dr. King on, on television and, and learning about the Civil Rights Movement. And one day, 64, 1965 maybe, I'm still in high school, a black family moved into St. Joseph who were upper middle class. The man was an executive at the Whirlpool Corporation this black man and his wife a black woman was also a professional woman i i, I forget what they did but uh they were wonderful people well well educated and uh the community lost their minds people went crazy and it was a big splashy story in the newspaper and again this just struck me as so odd I, I wasn't naive. I understood what racism was. But it forced me to really rethink my whole view of this. And then, of course, Dr. King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy shortly after that. And these, these incidents changed me such that I don't think it's enough for me or for that matter, for you, who, whomever you are listening to this program, to say, well, I'm not a racist. I think we have to all be anti-racists. Just like it's not enough to say, well, I didn't enlist in the military. I, I'm not a soldier. I'm not shooting at anybody. I'm not contributing to war. Yeah, but are you an anti-war activist? Are you working to wage peace? And so it is that we should work, especially listeners of this radio station, this Pacific Commission, not only to be anti-war activists, but to be anti-racists. And so it's in that context that I've been fortunate enough to find my guest today, who has devoted her life to what she calls race literacy. And uh, she does a great job of it. And I'm really excited to have her with us today and to introduce you to my guest, Milagros Phillips. And Milagros, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK in L.A. Good afternoon, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you today. I understand for a brief time you lived in southern Michigan also. I did. I was in, in Battle Creek, Michigan. I was um, the first... I was the founding executive director of the National Resource Center for the Healing of Racism. Seems like 100 years ago, but it was back in 2000. <laughs> well, some people might think that because uh, Michigan is a northern state that we don't suffer the kind of racism we see in the deep south. But huh, Well, you know, <laughs> that that. That is so interesting, um, and, and, it, and it's a great place for us to begin because um, northern states often, even eastern northern states, pride themselves in, you know, we didn't have slavery. But um, the reality is that all of those great factories in the north were built 
with the money from slavery. <laughs> and nobody ever talks about that. You know, like slavery actually funded the Industrial Revolution. We like to um, to extricate our history from that. But that's uh, that's a reality. Um, I have a very good friend, actually, who is from the north, from Rhode Island. Um, and um, she traces her family uh, back to being the biggest slave-owning family in the entire country. And they were from Rhode Island. And so, um, you know, they so they would have the ships built in England because, you know, the whole world was complicit around this stuff. So they would have the ships built in England. They would then go to Africa and pick up the human cargo. And they would then go to Cuba and um, and have... Um, the, the laborers, the enslaved laborers, work obviously for free in the sugarcane plantations. They would then take the sugar to, I think it was North or South Carolina. I can't remember exactly which one right now, but um, I believe, I think it was South Carolina. And, um, you know, they would use it to make spirit, which would then be, you know, sent all over the world, particularly to the North. So, you know, um, People like to extricate themselves from that history, but the truth is everybody in the world was complicit around that history of slavery. If you if you had ancestors who wore cotton clothing, if you had ancestors who drank tea or coffee, if you had ancestors who um, who put sugar in their tea or their coffee. You know, so it was like the whole world was, was complicit. But again, because we don't tell the whole story, we only tell pieces of the story, people often think like, oh, there was no slavery in, in the North. And it's like, mm, look again, look again, and look to see where all of that wealth came from, um, that those Northern families were... Uh, you know, to, to this day, a lot of them still um, are able to to live off of the privilege that came off of that. And a lot of them don't have the same amount of money that they used to or anywhere close. But they, they're still the families that get into Harvard and, uh, you know, the, the top schools and so on and so forth. And um, for those who want to know more about that particular history, uh, my, my friend is Katrina Brown and her um, documentary is called Traces of the Trade. And it was on PBS some years back. Um, but it's certainly worth watching because it's, it's a very rich history. This country, in many ways, was built on slave labor. And we look at the uh, economic advantages we live uh, being Americans and often fail to recognize that this is not merely the ingenuity of uh, rich uh, capitalists and robber barons, but the blood and the sweat and tears of slave labor. My God, the White House was built by slave labor. Indeed it was. A lot of Washington was built by slave labor. So, And, and think about this also. You know, very, very often we talk about these, these uh, beautiful plantation houses those were also built by slave labor. And we never talk about that. We only talk about the architects, but we don't talk about the people who actually, uh, you know, hand labored these beautiful, amazing mansions. And that's also important to talk about when we talk about these plantations. Some of the economic benefits of racism, I think, are very subtle. 
when I was working my way through college, I had a couple of factory jobs, again, in southwestern Michigan where I grew up. Um, I went to Michigan State, graduated Michigan State University, and didn't come west uh, until I was in my late 20s. But in the factory, I saw racism used to attack the union, to keep the workers at each other's throat. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how to explain without going into long stories, but um, I guess management felt, and it seemed to be well studied to me, that if they could use racism, especially among, you know, poorly educated uh, workers, it didn't really have much future. They were looking at being in that factory for the rest of their lives. There was no sense that they were going to advance. If they could keep them uh, against each other, create conflict and turmoil with subtle racism, then the union would not be so strong. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the forms that racism takes. Um, But you have to stop and, and think about all the various ways in which people have been, they've been sort of trained to see race through very specific eyes. So for instance, as you're talking about the factories, um, very often what you would hear was, well, you know, those people from other countries are coming here to take our jobs. And it's it's a very interesting way of framing racism. Because the reality is racism is privilege plus power. The power to keep you from voting, the power to keep you from a job, the power to, you know, the power to exclude you, right? And so um, so what often would happen is that, um, th- that the white body community would say things like, well, they're just coming over here to take our jobs. The reality is that those people coming from other countries didn't have the power to take those jobs. The ones that took those jobs away from those white communities were the wealthy whites who owned the factories and actually could pay to have those factories taken overseas where labor is a lot cheaper. And, you know, but it's so much easier to blame the victim than it is to blame the perpetrator because the moment you start to look over there, then the the factory workers would feel helpless against the sort of bigger machine, so to speak, right? The, The people who owned the factory and could decide whether they would keep those factories in those all white towns or whether they would move them overseas where they can make a bigger profit. And, you know, and so... By making people look at it through the lens of race, what it did was it took away the stigma of having to look at those who made you feel powerless to begin with and look at their behavior and the choices that they were making and how that was impacting your life and not those people who just came over the border. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> so it's really important because I think a lot of what happens with racism is, is first of all, racism is there are no genetic markers differentiating one human group from another. But by using racism, uh, 
you actually can can create a narrative that people who don't take the time to research or understand the history can repeat and parrot over and over and over again. And then that becomes the norm. And that becomes what people refer to when they're having these conversations. And then after a while, it's spread all over the place like butter. And people are saying things that actually are erroneous, but they believe it. And they believe it to the point that even when you show them the facts, they still cannot accept it. And so that whole division, you know, dividing one group of worker against another group of worker to keep factors, to keep, uh, you know, the unions from being established in the factories actually affected all of the workers, regardless of the color of their skin. And yet people were willing to allow that to happen in order to stay white. Because if you were seen as somebody who sided with black and brown people, you could lose your social status. And when you are struggling financially, you have very little social status. The only social status you really have are the neighbors around you. And if those neighbors turn against you, then you're in trouble. Yeah, there's special racial slurs. I haven't heard them as an adult, but again, in the 50s and 60s when I was a kid, you would hear these uh, special category of racial slur for white people who had friends of color. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was just not allowed because you were threatening something much bigger, something invisible and unseen that uh, we need to talk about, which is institutional racism and systemic racism and I've seen some of your lectures and presentations where you break this down but first let me touch on your comment about racial markers because quite the contrary don't the racial markers as I understand it indicate that every single human being on this planet comes from a tribe of 200,000 people in West Africa? Yes. Have you ever heard that? Yes, it's called the out-of-Africa theory. Is it a theory or is it a genetic they, they call They call it a theory, the out-of-Africa theory. That's what they call it. But what it is is that um, our entire human race, we're all related, first of all. All of us. <laughs> we're all related. And... Um, and you, what they have done is through epigenetics, they have traced and through the women, because it was through the mitochondrial DNA, which women pass on to male and female, but only the females pass it. The males do not pass the mitochondrial DNA. And so they use the mitochondrial DNA to trace the entire human race. And what they found was that we're all related to, um, you know, one one body that was found, they called that this body Lucy, and it's a woman in um, in Africa. And so we're all related to Lucy because we all have Lucy's DNA. And so, um, you know, so when you think about that from that perspective and how that population of Africans went out and settled the entire world, um, in fact, there was a, a, a Chinese scientist who was trying to prove that Chinese people were not descendants from the Africans. And guess what he found? 
they're related they're they're descendant from the africans as well when he did when he did the work that he did he found that out and so um you know so there because of racism people are constantly trying to disprove that you know and all that happens is that they find out they actually are related to black folk that come from africa right um but the the reality is is as people went out and settled the world over millennia because they lived in different parts of the world they developed different cultures different belief systems different um um ways of being different foods different you know because of where you live so for instance if you if you ended up if your tribe ended up settling in a northern climate where it's cold 9 months out of the year you only have about 3 months to grow your food your perception of the world is different from people who developed around the equator who have food 24/7 365 days a year and there's always something that's in season if the papaya is not in season the mangoes in season if the mangoes not in season then you know there's always something in season so your perception of the world is different your perception of the world is one of the world is abundant whereas if you look out in the cold climate in my 9 months out of the year you don't even see a leaf on the trees your perception of the world is one of lack there isn't enough and so you know so as people went and settled different parts of the world they developed um different cultures in fact there's something and i talk about it in my book um there's a chapter in my book called latitude and attitude and how where the in the latitude that your tribe developed actually determines a lot of your attitude about different things right like for instance if you if you developed in the northern climate then preservation is going to be very important to you because you have to be able to preserve the grain or whatever you grow and make sure that it lasts you until you can grow and harvest some more where if you try to preserve in a hot climate the food's going to go bad <laughs> okay and so you know so where people developed after they left africa and the things that they had to learn and to do are are a uh, part of where we are today because we have these different um different cultures and um different environments different languages and all kinds of things that develop out of people living in various parts of the world well this is an important point so let's settle it here you're very clear about this that there is one human race and yet ethnicity is a very real thing that we should respect and honor Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone's story counts. Everyone's history is important because you know when 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 we only tell we have one human history, like the history of the human family, right? But when we choose to only tell history and we ignore her story and we ignore their story, what happens is that we then have a skewed narrative. from which to build our personal um awareness of who we are as a human being. And so, you know, a lot of of what determines who we are today came from what we learned from our ancestors and the things that they passed down to us just as mere survival, you know? And so when you're looking at the human race through those eyes, you begin to see things differently. You begin to see people differently when you realize that there is one human history, but only certain people have had the opportunity to tell that story because of the ways in which we have segregated and um 
and owned who gets to tell the story, right? Usually the leaders and, and the nobility and the papacy and the people with the wealth got to tell the story of the people that they didn't even know. They didn't have relationships with those people because, um, you know, as you mentioned even earlier, um, as you were saying, Michael, you had just even in in your town where you grew up, you had the people who had the wealth who lived at the top of the hill. And then you had the workers who lived at the bottom of the hill and never the twain shall meet. That's the way that things were set up because uh, people married, you know, marriages were transactional and as a result, you know, you, you weren't allowed to intermarry. If you tried to do that, your society would oust you if you were a wealthy person and you married outside of your realm, right? So so this is this is stuff that's been going on forever. And um, separation is one of those things that causes human trauma. Humans do not, like babies that are separated from their mother... Uh, you know, for long periods of time after birth, have a difficult time bonding and adjusting. And sometimes they have a difficult time even nursing from the mother. So, you know, so human beings are wired for connection. One of the worst things that you can do to human beings is to segregate them from other human beings. One of the most fascinating, for me anyway, uh, aspects of watching this horrid, unspeakable war in Europe is Americans, white Americans in particular, seeing the victims of war interviewed. And it makes me wonder how different things would be if the victims of our aggression in Vietnam and Iraq were interviewed in the same way these white people in uh, Ukraine are being interviewed. Uh, were not their children orphaned in Iraq by our invasion there? Were not mothers horrified? Were not citizens killed by the thousands? They always are in war, but now we're seeing war on white people and they're being interviewed. And uh, I think it's a double-edged sword because I think there are benefits. I think the disgust of war is being brought home in ways that, uh, that we've never really considered before because it's white people. Uh, America nuked Japan. We would never nuke Germany. There's white people there. We incarcerated Americans of Japanese descent in World War II. I didn't see any German-Americans or Italian-Americans going into camps. Uh, so racism has always played a role in this kind of stuff. And you talked about power. Now, I need to take a short break. But when we come back, let's talk more about capital P power <laughs> in all of this. Because we can't talk about economics or racism in general without discussing what we mean by power. We're talking about race literacy. My guest today is Milagros Phillips. She's in Washington, D.C., and wherever you happen to be, you're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. My name is Michael Benner, and we'll be right back after this. Please help keep independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio Strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. 
per month, whatever suits you. This is Verdine White of Earth, Wind, and Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. Lagros Phillips is my guest today. She's a teacher, an author, a speaker, a writer. Um, on this topic of race literacy, a wonderful term. I'd like to hear us use this term more often rather than slinging around insulting terms. Racism is a powerful term, and uh, it has its place. It's a very real thing. But I love the approach, the educational approach. I think the patience of people of color is extraordinary. I think if I was a dark-skinned person, I would just be so angry pulling my hair out at the daily injustices that I'm suffering. It would just be maddening. It's just hard for me to imagine how people of color can be so patient and work so hard this struggle, this continual struggle for what? For equality. Black Lives Matter. Like, is that controversial that the Black Lives would would matter? <laughs> I, I, I don't see a, a black supremacy as being an issue or brown supremacy. This is not seem to, to be an issue. Let, let's talk about power. My guest is Milagros Phillips. Sometimes we will hear the disgruntled uh, white person saying, well, black people are racist too. Um, there's there's lots of black people that don't like white people. Uh, they call us uh, the white devils, and uh, so they're discriminating against us too. And it seems to me that you can't really discriminate if you don't have the power to oppress. Well, actually, you can discriminate. There are a lot of black and brown people who discriminate against other against other black and brown people and against white people. But what they're not is racist because they're missing the power piece. The power piece is the power to keep somebody from voting, the power to keep somebody from getting a job, the power to get somebody fired, the power to call the police on somebody who's bird watching the power to call the police on people who are sitting having coffee at at a, a, at Starbucks and, and then have the police come and actually arrest people, even when they haven't done anything. That's the difference. That's the difference. Um, you know, if, if a, a black person is being attacked by a white person and, uh, and somebody who's watching calls the police, they'll grab that black person, even though they weren't the aggressor. And they're more likely to be taken in while the actual aggressor of the aggressor is white. Nothing happens to them. There was a story in the news not long ago of a a couple of teenagers, one black, one white, fighting in some shopping mall back east. The cops show up, break up the fight. Uh, They put the white kid on the bench. The black kid's on the ground with uh, the cop kneeling on his neck, handcuffed. Uh, handled roughly, while the white kid sits on the bench. 
that same thing happens in a lot of different forms, but because it happens in a lot of different forms, people fail to recognize that it's still the same stuff. It's just happening in a different way. So, um, you know, so, so you have um, people who, um, who will call the police on particularly black men and black boys, um, you know, certainly more often than they do black women um, and, and black girls, but they still do it to black women and black girls as well. Um, we'll call the police for any little thing. We find that in schools, teachers are more likely to um, to send black and brown children to the office or to have them suspended from school for the same things that white children do and their parents don't even get called. And so, um, you know, there's this perception that um, th- there have been a lot of, of, um, of studies that show that um, white teachers look at black and brown children and particularly black children as being four to five years older than they actually are. And that's huge. And so, um, you know, so you have these, these very subtle ways in which people do racism that we don't always pay attention to, but it's important to realize that we are still dealing with somebody who has reached, who has, recognized or unrecognized racial biases that are affecting another human's life. I've seen research that even in healthcare, Mm -hmm. people of color are more likely to have their pain discounted. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I wrote a book in 2019 called Speaking Race in Healthcare, which, um, which addresses that. And, and I wrote that book because, again, we only tell part of the story, right? And so very often what you hear is that black folks have higher incidence of, you know, high blood pressure and diabetes and all of, of these various illnesses. But what no one ever talks about is that these are stress-related illnesses. And black and brown people, and particularly black people, live with higher incidence of macro and micro aggressions on a regular basis. They find that, um, you know, the, the resting heart, uh, the, the resting blood pressure for black people, where for whites, that blood pressure goes down at night. For a lot of black people, it does not go down at night. It stays elevated. So it's like, you know, it's like revving an engine, and not not going anywhere, right? And so um, these stress-related illnesses, if we only tell half the story, it sounds like, oh, well, those people get really sick all the time, right? But when you think about the micro-macroaggressions that black and brown people experience on a regular basis, you realize that they actually are pretty healthy people, but they're constantly being bombarded and re-traumatized on a regular basis. And... Um, and have to and 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 they don't necessarily get the psychoemotional health care that they need. And then when they do go to get regular health care for their bodies, the practitioners don't understand what's going on. And so you have very, you know sometimes you have overmedicated um, black and brown people. On the other side of that, as you mentioned, the perception is that they have a higher tolerance for pain. 
which obviously is not true. We're all humans. There are some humans that have a higher tolerance for pain than others, regardless of the color of their skin. But here's how that played out when it comes to the um, opioid um, epidemic. You find that you don't have that many black people who are addicted to opioids. They were giving opioids to white body people because they felt like, you know, they, they're, they're more fragile. They, they need help for their pain. They're in a lot of pain, right? And so they gave them those opioids, but they denied them to the black and brown people because they just felt like, well, you just go home and take some Tylenol. Ain't nothing wrong with you. You know what I mean? Like, that's how they treated them. And as a result, you find that you don't have that epidemic in the black community where, where you would have had it if they looked at everyone as, you know, human beings, right? And so, you know, this constant dehumanization of, of black and brown people causes all kinds of problems. But um, in the healthcare field, it, it is so, so important that healthcare providers understand intergenerational and historical trauma, the way that that trauma still affects people today because we know that trauma gets passed down from one generation to another. The ways in which people are constantly re-traumatized through the news, through the media, through the newspapers and the books and, and everything else, and how without a conscious awareness of that, um, we are not creating treatment plans that actually can help black and brown people in ways that we've not even dreamed of yet because we're not looking in that direction. Well, one of the most obvious disparities, of course, when we look at uh, racism and discrimination is income. And uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So we have many people of color living in um, poorer sections of town where there are literal food deserts and it's difficult to get healthful food. And so that has to impact on your health as well. Well, yeah, the thing is, you know, um, I, I've worked on a project called Congressional Conversations on Race in um, from 2010 to 2013. And one of the members of Congress that we work with had a food desert in his in his district. So I created a program that allowed the members and the councils and all of these people who had positions of power in the community to come with us along with some of the citizens in the community, along with the, uh, the senior staff at the major supermarkets in the area. Um, and, and we took them on a tour so that they could actually see what, you know, what a food desert looks like, <laughs> you know, because it, it's, you know, some, again, it's it's the, the the words we parrot without understanding the real meaning and the real impact that that has on human lives. And so, uh, so we put him on the bus and we we did this tour and we took him through you know the the center of town, and um, and then we we went by the farmers market, and the. A lot of the people in this particular town didn't own their own cars. And so, you know, there were no supermarkets within walking distance, but there were a lot of fast food places. So people were going to the fast food places. But interestingly enough, there was a um, there was a, a, a farmer's market that would stop there. I think it was like once a week. 
and it would stop at the other end of town. So the white community had access to that farmer's market, but the black community didn't because it was just far enough away from where they lived that they couldn't get there. So there was a bus service in the town to take people to and from work because, you know, you got to make sure they're employed, right? And so um, while we were on that tour, because the people on that tour understood someone from the city council or something, while I was doing a presentation, got on the phone. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's not even listening to my presentation. You know what I mean? It was just like, it's kind of rude. And then she gets off the phone and she goes, okay, it's done. And I said, excuse me. She goes, as of tomorrow, there will be a, the, the bus will, there'll be a bus stop place there and the bus will stop there every day. So change can be made. Like one of the things we need to do is we need to stop complaining and stop whining and start looking at who are the decision makers and how do we help them see what is wrong and where things can be fixed and where the opportunities are and where we can make a difference. That is hugely important. Had those folks not actually seen with their own two eyes that what a food desert really looks like, you know, they, they might never have had that bust up there. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is we then gathered everyone in conversation with the owners of the supermarkets and the senior leads in these two major supermarkets in the area and really questioned them about why don't they have supermarkets in these communities, which, of course, was, you know, because of the finances and, and all of these other things. And, you know, and, and we were able to, and also we had farmers there, by the way. We also invited the farmers. And out of this came the bus stop for, you know, near the, the farmer's market. Out of this came a grant for the farmers. Out of this came a um, you know, supermarkets that were looking at how do we, they put a couple of supermarkets in these areas where these people don't have much of a choice as to what they can purchase. So we can enact change when we care enough, when we bring together the right groups of people and, and we have deep conversations, not accusatory conversations, but deep conversations that can lead to transformation. And my work is centered on that. All of my books, I've written five books. All of my books are centered on information that leads to transformation. Because if we can't have these important conversations without throwing stones at one another, we're never going to change this. And we're going to leave it for yet another generation to struggle with. When we are here now and we can make a difference here now, we are one human family. This is a human family problem. And we need to work together to make a difference. Yeah, the word I hear is organizing. It's so important to organize. <laughs> I remember. And not just organize, because we have, you know, um, we have a lot of, of, uh, of protests these days. And the difference between protests these days and protests back in the 50s and 60s was that there were leaders who actually were having conversations with the people who had the power to change things. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. When Dr. King was going in and negotiating with Johnson or, you know what I'm saying, like President Johnson, like they, 
like people just look back at the past with this this strange form of nostalgia that leaves out the meat of what made things different. And what made things different was bringing as many people as had the power to shift things, to make things different, bringing those people to the table. And, and, and also not being naive and creating myths around the history. Because everybody I know and their uncle and their brother and their grandfather walk with Martin Luther King. People love to say stuff like that. The truth is Martin Luther King was only respected and admired by about 25% of the population in America at, at that time. So you tell me how many people really walked with him. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's insane. But people make up these stories or somebody tells them, you know, they're probably down the street when they were marching and they may even have been the people yelling and throwing stones at him. But now they walk with Dr. King. Like, we need to just stop. It's ridiculous. We need to just stop. We need to take a breath. We need to realize that only 25% of American people actually had any respect for Dr. King. But now we look back on the history and we go, oh, he was a hero. Well, absolutely he was a hero, considering that he only had 25% of the population who actually thought that what he was doing was right. Everybody else thought he was something wrong with that man. So, you know, this is why history is so important. And we cannot, we cannot continue to create myths. This is not Cinderella. This is real life and people are losing their real lives because we're not getting it. It's time for us to get this. I think so much of this is the mindset. What you've just described as we talk about organizing is also mediating, uh, bringing all these groups together at the same table Most people think of race as a kind of a tug of war, a struggle for power, back and forth, like a football game with a winner and a loser. And if I win, uh, whoever is different opposes me and they lose. Or if they win, then I lose. What you're saying is the secret of mediation is what do we have in common? What are the mutual benefits to the farmer and the grocery store owner and the bus company. <laughs> and and the course, community. Yes, the community. Uh, how do we all win? And that's why I think organizing. I believe in street protest. I believe in direct action. I think boycotts and sit-ins. And uh, I've occupied a couple of administration <laughs> buildings in my life. Uh, I think that's important, but there's... Boy, those are demonstrations. You're demonstrating. You're attracting attention. But then, who's going to do the work? That's what organizing is all about, is let's roll up our sleeves, let's sit down, and let's find some common ground here. Absolutely. You know, they used to make fun of, uh, the right wing used to make fun of President Obama for being a community organizer, and I always thought, what more noble profession? It's like being a, a teacher or a, or, or a nurse, uh, a community organizer is a, a devotion to making the world a better place. How can you, how can you mock that, right? Well, I girls, before we run, I want to let people 
find out how they can get more information about you. You've referred to your books. I know you've got YouTube videos. Is there a website people can go to to learn more about your books and the good work that you're doing? Sure. They can go to www.milagrosphillips.com. So it's just my name.com. And we have an amazing program. It's called Race Literacy, Race Literacy Lunch and Learn. That happens the first Monday of every month at 12 noon from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern. And anyone can join that program. There's also that program also offers sponsorship for organizations because so often organizations will do, um, you know, one program and they often think it's one and done. Right. Uh, when in reality, we, this is something that needs to be ongoing. Paul, if you're going to have equity in your organization, you need to understand race at its depth. And it's not one and done, but actual continual learning. And this this monthly Lunch and Learn offers continual learning for organizations. The wonderful thing about it is that um, you will be in great company from people in, in different industries from not just around this country, but in different parts of the world. We have uh, Canadian companies that have joined us. We have obviously companies in the U.S. We have U.K. folks that have joined us, uh, people from Mexico, for, at different times, we have people from different parts of the world also joining us. So it's a wonderful program. And there's also a two-day intensive that I do that's coming up. Um, and you can find that on my website. It's called Race Demystified. And it's powerful. I've been doing it for 20 years. And everybody that goes through that program simply says they never see race the same way again. So I hope that you'll consider joining us. Of course, you can get my books. You can find my books on the web and you'll find them on Amazon. I have five different books, and the last one is Cracking the Healer's Code, A Prescription for Healing Racism and Finding Wholeness. And that book is powerful because it walks you through the stages of healing. And I, I think you'll find it to be transformative. Thank you so much. MilagrosPhillips.com. Milagros, thank you so very much. I hope we can do this again. I just find... Not only your content and information to be edifying, but your whole approach, your demeanor, your attitude and style fills me with hope. And and I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is podcast to all players and aggregators, all podcatchers, whichever is your favorite. You'll also see it posted on YouTube under the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. It streams on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. And again, thanks to you for listening and joining us. Thanks to my producer, Mark Brisky. Stay tuned for The Carrie Harrison Show. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK. Yeah, this is Ziggy Marley. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. It's really powered by the people. Keep it locked.